I'm Brett Baer. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Brian Kilmeade, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, November 10th, 2023. I'm Dana Perino. A small country with a big story. Israel finds itself in a war they say is existential. A new book explains how Israeli society projects cohesion and resilience against all odds. Because in Israel, obviously they have deep political division, and we talk a lot about that in the book. But it doesn't come at the expense of, of feeling like a sense of community with your fellow citizens. I'm Jared Halpern. Democrats see building momentum for them after some surprise election pickups this week. But perception is reality, and when people go vote, um, that's where it matters, not the polling, but the voting. Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream looks at how abortion is reshaping the political landscape. And I'm Marcus Brotherton. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Shortly after Israel suffered a surprise attack on October 7th by Hamas terrorists, They barely had time to mourn the nearly 1,400 people killed and the hostages taken before entering a state of war. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had this to say at an October press conference in Tel Aviv. Israel is at war. We didn't want this war. It was forced upon us in the most brutal and savage way. But though Israel didn't start this war, Israel will finish it. President Biden initially came out with strong support for Israel, vowing that the U.S. stands with its allies, calling Hamas ISIS. But now the war has entered its second month, and as the president's poll numbers slip, young people on college campuses or in major cities are protesting against U.S. support for Israel. Even before the war, Israeli society was grappling with internal strife after their prime minister pushed a plan for a change to its government's judicial system, which sparked massive protests. An Israeli man protesting told Fox's Trey Yinks in July. I want future in this country. I want peace. I want freedom. Despite Israel's long history of defending itself from nearby enemies who wish to see its nations destroyed, mandatory military service and recent political polarization, the people of Israel appear united and resilient in the face of terrors they've faced and the difficult war ahead of them. So how has Israeli society weathered adversity to come out stronger as a people? I was born in a very Zionist home. So I was born in upstate New York, lived in Canada for a number of years. My mother's a Holocaust survivor. Dan Senor served as a foreign policy advisor under President George W. Bush, host of the Call Me Back podcast and the author of a brand new book called The Genius of Israel. She was hidden as a child by what we call righteous Gentiles, which are non-Jews in Eastern Europe, in Germany during uh, World War II who hid out Jews to great risk to their own lives did it. In fact, the person who hid my mother out and her mother out had a close encounter because he was hiding out Jews. It's an extraordinary story. Mm. It was a heavy upbringing. My mother's father, my grandfather was killed at Auschwitz. My mother and her mother escaped before the train to Auschwitz, and that's how they got on the run. But how my, old was she? She was a little girl, six, mm-hmm. you know, five, wow. seven years old. So that's what I grew up with on her side. My father, very involved with Zionist activism in the U.S. He was a, like a, a protege of this guy named Rabbi of Ab- Hillel Silver, who was a big champion for the founding of the state of Israel. And then my father had worked on a number of Jewish and, and pro-Israel causes. So this was like, as I said, it was like in the water in my home. Because it was in the water, so to speak, I have two sisters who ultimately made the decision to move to Israel. And they um, have raised children there. Each of them have three kids. 
one of my sisters has a daughter who's been called up to reserves. Her husband, Saul Singer, is the co-author of our book. My other sister has three sons. Two of the three sons have been called up, plus a grandson, plus a niece. Mm-hmm. So it just gives you a sense of how everyone... So you're in it. In it, you're right. You're in it. And um, so when I do my reporting and an- analysis on your show and mm-hmm. others, I'm bringing to it my analytical lens, but I also have... I'm talking to real people who are like living this. And so I spent, this was, I was sort of raised with this. I studied for a year in Israel uh, at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem when I was in college. I I did some work there. I did some research as an intern for uh, the Chicago Tribune's Middle East Bureau. And then I got interested in Israeli startups. I started investing in Israeli entrepreneurs. And so between all those things, family, business, personal interest, upbringing, it means I'm in Israel about every two or three months. And, you know, I feel very deeply, deeply connected. Quickly, how do you describe it? What does it mean to be a Zionist activist? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's to say you're a Zionist means you believe in the the idea that the Jews deserve and need to build a state, which basically is activist may be redundant, but it just means that I'm Mm -hmm. involved in it. I'm 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 I've been a I've been a voice for defense of the Jewish state, advocacy for the Jewish state, not in a formal way, but right. just an informal way. I ask only because I feel like there's a lot of terms that yeah. have got yeah. up and that people are now like, wait, what does it mean from the river to the sea? And now everyone's getting a real education. And yeah. you're, you have a podcast called Call Me Back. I listened to it before the war. Uh, I love it. I recommended it to everybody. But now I have an insatiable need for more information and, and I can find it there. And I want to ask you all about the book, but before I do, because... Things, the book and its outreach and what it means, I think really, it it doesn't change the content of the book, but October 7th changes this book Yeah, and the approach of of promoting it, because I just wonder what you were thinking on October 7th. How did you find out that October 7th was going down? Where were you? What was it like? On October 6th, uh, after we do a Friday night dinner, uh, Shabbat dinner. And that was a, that was an especially important day because that was uh, it was a Jewish holiday. It was Simchat mm-hmm. Torah, so a lot of religious Jews who normally would be in services and synagogue for Shabbat, but it's also this added layer of a very important holiday. Um, before I went to bed late that night, I just glanced at my phone just before I crashed, which was late on Friday night, and I saw in all my WhatsApp groups with Israelis, and they're like, "Something's going on," and but I, I discounted it at the time because I thought. Uh, you know, it's just the usual Israel-Gaza skirmish. Mm-hmm. And, it'll, you know, I just didn't think it was any different than May of 21 or 2000, summer of, of uh, 22. Or, I mean, these things pop up and then they pop down. I thought it was a version of that. Although, the, in retrospect, the way they were talking, it, it, there was a sense that it was worse than that because it wasn't just rockets being fired. There was something about a land, a border penetration, which just never happened. So I knew at that point it was probably real. And this was different. And then the other way I knew it was really different is, and I haven't talked about this publicly, my sister, who is uh, eight years older than me, lives in Jerusalem. She is completely shuts off of electronic devices on Shabbat from sundown on Friday nights till sundown on Saturday night. She's completely unreachable. And I called her phone, which I would never do. Mm -hmm. I called her cell phone and she answered. And I knew when she answered the phone, mm. this was serious. And she said when she was, she ran home because she had to get, because all these homes have bomb shelters in Israel. They had to get to these like bomb shelters. And she saw cars whizzing by, which you never see on Shabbat in Israel. She knew they were rushing mm. to reserve duty. 
They were rushing to hospitals. And that all had, when you go back in history, that all had the feel of the 1973 Yom Kippur War when Israel was under siege. One of the things you've said is that Jews feel that they can touch history and shape it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I was wondering about, like even with your sister, is that because you, you, you go back and you visit your mom's hometown, but that was, you know, that was the never again. Right. And so your generation, you and your sister and even your children are thinking, well, we have to keep that memory alive. We have to understand the history, but we're never going to have to do that again. Right. Because never again. Right. But now here we are. Yeah. I, this, this, that, look, as an analyst of events in the Middle East and Israel, I sort of consider myself sort of a participant and sort of an analyst. But as an analyst, I've always been able to keep a little bit of distance because I know people in harm's way in Israel whenever there's a conflict or whenever there's a security threat. But I, I'll be honest, like, I don't feel vulnerable. I don't actually feel vulnerable in these situations. I heard all these stories from my mother growing up, and my mother was always, like, very suspicious and very, like, you know, and not in a bad way. She came by it honestly. Like, she'd gone through this incredible trauma. And, and even what she did after the war, when she was on the run, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an unbelievable story. This is the first time I have felt vulnerable. And being targeted as a Jew, like there was a Jew hunting quality to it now. And, and again, this didn't hit me the first few days after. It's, it's, it's more in the last couple of weeks, this sense that it's weirdly being tolerated. I feel it for you. It's like normalized. One of the things you also talk about is that what happens in Israel matters. Yeah. Why does it matter here? Why should people here care? Yeah. So, so Mika Goodman is one of these guys we interview in the book who's a big public intellectual. He's had a lot of influence on my thinking. And he says that Israel is, in that chapter called Touching History, he says Israel is a small country with a big story. And I love that line. Small yeah. country. In fact, I wrote it down yeah. here. <laughs> small country with a big story. You have big countries with big stories. The United States is a big country with a big story. China, love it or hate it, <laughs> is a big country with a big story. But you don't have a lot of countries in the world that are small with big stories. In there, you talk about, in America, we have a strong government and a weak society. Right, right. But in Israel, you have a weak government and a strong society. Yeah. And you talk about the cohesiveness that is critical for a healthy society yeah. for, and a healthy and thriving country. What is the lesson here for us in the United States about how we could be a more cohesive society with a strong government as well so that we can do what is needed in the world? Yeah. So there are like two or three things that I hope Americans can take away from this book. And you're zeroing in on one of them. Coming back to Mika Goodman, he tells another story. In 2016, after Trump was elected, he goes to a conference at Harvard, and all these Harvard academics are sitting there talking about the Trump voter. I, I read a study about the Trump voter. I met a Trump. Let me tell you what this Trump voter said. And he's like, are you talking about your fellow citizens? I mean, I get you disagree with them politically, but you're talking about them as though there's some like lab experiment, like there's some other thing. Do you, do you actually interact with the them? The deplorables. Right. He found it so unrelatable because in Israel, obviously they have deep political division and we talk a lot about that in the book. 
but it doesn't come at the expense of, of feeling like a sense of community with your fellow citizens. So one of the most important things that, that is that glue that you're zeroing in on is most Israelis serve in some kind of national service. It's the, it's the military, there's some civilian alternatives, but it's, it's mostly the military. And it's two or three years unless they go on for officer training at formative ages, 18, 19, 20, 21, around there. And all, all of these people come out of the military more or less develop some extraordinary skills, which is like gold. It's phenomenal for building companies and startups and okay, mm. that's part of the value. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I hope people think about, we, and you alluded to it before, what's going on today on college campuses is like so disorienting for not only the outburst of anti-Semitism, but just this sense that it's not clear to me that many of these elite colleges are making our kids smarter <laughs> or more curious or more thoughtful. Fascinating. You are donating the proceeds of this book to a group called Zaka? Zaka. It's a few organizations. Zaka is one, which has done some amazing relief work and has also, um, they're doing a lot of, sadly, there's a lot of work to be done with mm -hmm. these burials and the, helping the families deal with all of it. Many people and families are going to multiple, have been going to multiple funerals. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's just, mm -hmm. it, it really is um, overwhelming to um, think about. So, and I, I'm sure there'll be other projects that I support, but, uh, and, I, and maybe I should, you know, advertise them, you know, so. I'm just curious because uh, it was an incredible effort to write the book. Yeah. And the meaning of the book changes yeah. after the attack. To me, it did. And I think it's wonderful that you wrote it. Um, I think it's a great tribute to your heritage. And um, I don't want to hear that my friends feel vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I understand that you do. And I think other people need to hear it too. So thanks for joining us on Thank the Fox you. News Rundown thanks podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks. Appreciate it, Dana. This is Marcus Brotherton with your Fox News commentary coming up. Polls don't vote. People vote, and the Biden administration is taking away a lot of positives from election results across the country this week. We saw the president's values and agenda uh, win big across uh, across the country last night. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre singled out abortion as an election issue. Vice President Kamala Harris said voters in Ohio who overwhelmingly approved abortion protections and voters in Kentucky and Virginia who lifted Democratic candidates sent a strong message on where the country is on reproductive rights. The voters said, look, the government should not be telling a woman what to do with her body. I think voters have been clear, regardless of whether they're in a so-called red or blue state. Proposals for abortion restrictions at the federal level are also emerging as a source of separation among Republicans running for president. You've got Republicans not being honest and realistic with women on abortion. We need to be honest. The only way a federal law is going to get passed is if you have 60 Senate votes. We haven't had 60 Senate votes in over 100 years. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley warns without bipartisan support, abortion proposals put forward won't win and says candidates should not overpromise. It has put her at odds with fellow South Carolinian Senator Tim Scott. Nikki's willing to fight to get 60 votes to change people's social security. I think we should fight for 60 votes to, to save lives. People want to know what you're willing to fight for. If it takes four years of my administration to get to a 15-week limit where three out of four Americans already are, 
That's worth the battle. And it is clear this issue in a post-Roe landscape is shifting long-held political alignments. They look at this issue and say this has been a winner for us. After the pro-life forces fought for 50 years to get rid of Roe, they seem to be in some ways being caught flat-footed by the fallout from this. Shannon Bream is the anchor of Fox News Sunday and the host of the Fox News podcast, Living the Bream. And you can hear the frustration from those groups. They admit that this has not gone well for them post-Dobbs, that Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. And listen, messaging is a big part of this. And so they've got some specific ideas for moving forward. But for now, Democrats say this is working for them every time, which means they're trying to get abortion measures on state ballots in a number of really important swing states for 2024, because they know the evidence shows that drives out the left for them, those voters. Well, and it seems to also be building a different type of coalition. I mean, you look at that proposition in Ohio. That is a state that I think Trump won by maybe 10 points, right? It's maybe outside the realm of what we'd consider a swing state, but still that constitutional uh, provision got upwards of, of like 60 percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. That That is building a coalition beyond just kind of, uh, you know, the base, isn't it? I feel like state constitutional amendments, every time I have to vote on one, (laughs) it takes a lot of deciphering exactly what does this mean? Am I voting for or against something? And so (laughs) they argued the language was not clear and that they did not do a good enough job of getting out and sharing the message about what the measure actually would mean. But perception is reality. And when people go Mm -hmm. vote, um, that's where it matters, not the polling, but the voting. Yeah, I wonder, too, what Democrats take away from, say, the win of Andy Bashir in mm-hmm. um, Kentucky, who I think now has the distinction of being the only other two-term governor uh, since his father uh, for a Democrat right. in that state. I think you're right. <laughs> um, yeah, and... Uh, and the Bashir family knows how to win. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know he did a lot during the campaign to try to stay away from Biden because Biden is deeply unpopular in Kentucky. Yeah, And yet although, Bashir was able to win. Well, and, you know, one of the things that I think he did focus on, and I'll be curious to see if you see this play out nationally, is he tied himself to Biden uh, when it came to that bridge. <laughs> um, well, uh, of course. That, that, right. But. So, I mean, it seemed like the infrastructure thing, but he also did talk about uh, abortion to a certain extent, at least in in trying to frame his position as it relates to the Republican Daniel Cameron's position. But I do wonder if Republicans look at that and wonder, boy, if we can't win a governor's race in a state Mm -hmm. like Kentucky with the environment, what it is right now, with Biden's unpopularity was as it is right now, what kind Mm -hmm. of pause that that's giving either party as they try and now craft messages for 2024? Yeah. And I think they're trying to break down all of those different state races that we saw on Tuesday. (laughs) It's going to be a lot of data. (laughs) There's a lot of data. And here's the thing. Biden was not on the ballot. We know his polling numbers are horrendous. The New York Times polling that came out over the weekend that showed him head to head with Trump losing five out of six swing states. So Mm -hmm. the fact is that Biden himself does not poll well. So when his name's on the ballot, how much will that matter next year? I mean, the economy drives people crazy. People are having trouble keeping a roof over their heads, putting gas in the car, getting groceries, taking care of their kids. That's not something that they really decide at the state level, but they do at the federal level, and they blame whoever's in the White House, Democrat or Republican. Well, and I think that there are still going to be questions about who is Biden running against. Uh, obviously, former President Trump is polling really well against Biden, but we don't know what that situation looks like a year from now, do we? 
We don't. I mean, there have been some green shoots on the economy, which the Biden folks will say, look, things are going to be better a year from now. And if people feel like they've got more money in their pocket and their paycheck is growing, that's going to change how they feel about a lot of things. But we are in a couple of you know, serious foreign policy situations that the Biden administration was, he was supposed to come in as sort of the anti-war president. We're not going to get you involved in these things. Well, you know, I know how to manage foreign policy. I've done that as senator for decades. Um, But the fact is the Israel thing, I don't think that that any of us think that's going to wrap up neatly or easily. Ukraine certainly doesn't look like it's wrapping up neatly or easily. And so U.S. tax sellers are going to continue to flow to those kinds of things. And if the White House doesn't do a better job of articulating exactly what we're doing, what the end goal is, mm-hmm. how you measure victory. That's another thing that the American people are growing weary of. And that's a fascinating dynamic. I want to talk a little bit about the debate this week, only in the context of those two issues, right? abortion and kind of foreign policy, because there does seem to be uh, some division amongst these Republican candidates on that issue. Um, certainly Nikki Haley seems to be taking a much more, maybe you call it politically practical approach to abortion. Is that mm-hmm. a message that maybe some of the pro-life groups who traditionally are needed to win a, a Republican presidency are, are inclined to support? Yeah, because I think what we're hearing from them after Tuesday night is, yes, we would love to outlaw all abortions, but Let's get the best deal that we can. If the American people can agree at viability or 15 weeks or pick something Mm -hmm. that would limit the number of abortions that are currently going on, these pro-life groups are saying, "Okay, let's do that. And you've got Nikki Haley out there, I think, as a woman, too. She's really trying to talk about these are women in difficult situations. Let's figure out how we help them, not just help the baby, but help the woman. So I think the conversation she has about it is a little bit different. But she also goes on to say, I'm not going to tell voters I can get them a 15 week ban. You do not have the votes in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And unless that radically changes, you can't tell people you're going to give them something they can't. Um, But I pressed her on that on the abortion issue. And she has said, yeah, if we had the votes, I would definitely sign a 15 week ban. So but what she'll say to voters is true. You can't promise people what you can't do. What about the argument? And I think Chris Christie's talked a little bit about this, too, is that Roe or Dobbs, when it overturned Roe, threw it back to the states Mm -hmm. and it ought not be a federal issue. Well, you know, there are those who will argue there's language in the in the decision that says it should go to the legislative bodies. And so you've got people like Senator Graham out there arguing that includes the federal legislative body, that includes Congress, the House and the Senate. That's why he's pressed for a ban, which he's done for a long, 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 long time. I mean, he's been about the 20 week ban for a long time, and I think he would go further if he thought he could get it. But, you know, there are those who believe that it wasn't just back to the states. But if you're truly pro-life, you got to think you're going to have some kind of passion against fighting a nine month limit. Um, so we'll see. It's it's a very difficult thing that Republicans are still trying to figure out how to speak clearly about. I mean, Glenn Youngkin felt like he had a good message in Virginia. It didn't resonate there. He said 15 weeks with some exceptions. Mm-hmm. He thinks that's reasonable. And, you know, I think, what is it, three out of four voters do agree with that timeline that they could support something like that with exceptions. You're right. There, there's going to be a lot of, I think, maybe looking back at data points and what message works, what message doesn't work. Let's talk about the messaging with Israel, Ukraine. China, Taiwan, right? Because the Congress is still trying to wrestle with this uh, mm-hmm. $106 billion measure uh, proposed by President Biden. It's interesting to hear the White House and uh, Nikki Haley and Mitch McConnell kind of like saying the same thing, right? That these are all connected and intertwined mm-hmm. and we have to sort of have them all together. And then you have other Republicans who say, no, we're going to, you know, bit by bit take this. And Ukraine is not the same as Israel or, or vice versa for some Democrats. You know, how does that get resolved now between the House and the Senate? 
I think it's just going to be sheer numbers. I mean, the Senate is saying there's no way we're going to do this separately. The White House says it yeah. will not sign a standalone Israel package. You know, so it's going to be a game of chicken. And don't forget, everyone, we run out of money next week to run the federal we government. <laughs> so it's against that backdrop, too. Like, hey, we need $105 billion more dollars to, you know, fund all these different policies yeah. if we do it as a package with the White House wants. And we don't have any money to run our own government starting next week. So it's a really dangerous backdrop for everybody because I don't really see a plan for moving forward. All right. Let me finish with this because I like talking to you about the Supreme Court. Um, they had this gun case yes. this week. Um, mm-hmm. I think that what there's an underlying statute that, that the administration put forward that if you are convicted of the domestic violence, you can be restricted in, in owning a firearm. The question is whether or not that violates the Second Amendment. I was not in court for the arguments, but from what I read afterwards, the Supreme Court seemed to say this might not be such a bad policy. It seemed like there was skepticism across the bench for the idea of letting this guy, who does not sound like a good dude, I mean, he, all kinds of allegations of assaults and domestic violence and restraining orders. And at some point, yes, there was a statutory provision that kicked in that said he cannot currently own a gun under these circumstances in this situation. And it gets to that whole conversation about red flag laws and who can strip your gun, what kind of due process do you need? Can you simply ban someone from owning a gun in the first place if they're seen as a danger to society? This guy is not a good test case for this, for people who are gun rights advocates, because he's just not a good dude. And justices across the bench did recognize, like, listen, if somebody is dangerous to society, states and the feds can have an interest in regulating their ability to have a gun. A a week that begins uh, with a major government funding uh, deadline looming for Congress. And obviously we have these wars brewing. Uh, What where's the focus on Sunday? Yeah, so we've got one of the top Senate Democrats with us, Mark Warner, to talk Mm. about how this comes together. I mean, he's obviously a foreign policy um, heavyweight. So we Mm -hmm. talked to him about this funding package, Israel, Ukraine, the border, Taiwan. I mean, how does this come together in the Senate against that backdrop of us running out of money in the next few days? So uh, there's a lot to unpack there. And, you know, things that came up in the debate and have been coming up more broadly, even, you know, over on the Senate side, too, should we have direct strength? Strikes on Iran as we push back on, you know, the proxy strikes on our troops in the region. Um, how far does he think we should go and how do we resolve these funding fights? Um, we've got a lot to discuss with him. Shannon, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jared. And now some good news with Tanya J. Powers. A Pennsylvania school district has kindergarten teachers seeing double this year with 17 sets of twins who are all members of the graduating class of 2036. The Colonial School District northwest of Philadelphia has dubbed the phenomenon Twindergarten. The district's registrar started noticing the trend over the summer when children were being registered for the school year. Ridge Park Elementary has seven pairs of twins, the most in the district, while White Marsh Elementary has six sets and Plymouth Elementary has four. Some of the kids have found that having their twin nearby helps deal with the new experience of starting public school. Meanwhile, the school district is enjoying its moment in the limelight. Colonial's Community Relations Coordinator Jessica Lester told Fox News that while everyone's talking about the abundance of twins, they're just enjoying having the students there. In New York, Tanya J. Powers, Fox News.
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Marcus Brotherton. What's on your mind? This Veterans Day, I'm encouraging all of us to get tougher on ourselves. A story from World War II helped show the way. The Marines of H-21 were fighting on Guadalcanal. Sea rations had run out. Troops ate twice a day, but only coconuts and wormy rice they'd confiscated from the enemy. Private First Class Sid Phillips grew concerned for his hometown friend, W.O. Brown, who had severe dysentery. There was no medicine anymore, no cots to lie, and if you were sick, you simply laid on the ground. Brown grew so emaciated and weak, he couldn't even sit up. Before Phillips passed in 2015, I interviewed him for a book I was working on. I asked Phillips about his experiences on Guadalcanal. It was bad, Phillips told me. I didn't think my friend was going to survive. Each day during lulls in the fighting, Phillips carried Brown to the ocean and helped him get clean. I asked Phillips if he remembered any conversations during these times. Here I was expecting a poignant story. I pictured this young battle-hardened Marine carrying his nearly dead buddy to the water Keep holding on, Phillips would whisper. Have courage. Think of mom and apple pie. You know, something like that. But Phillips just chuckled. He said, I told Brown to stop being such a faker and take a salt tablet. (laughs) His response threw me. Phillips eventually became a respected medical doctor, and I asked him what his strategy had been back on Guadalcanal. Well, it didn't help anyone, he said, to overly commiserate with him. That only depressed him. But if he kidded him, if he joked with him, that made him smile. Yeah, the ribbing was all good-natured. He'd fire back a wisecrack at you, and soon he'd get to fighting again. Can Philip's strategy apply to us today? Phillips respected Brown as a man with a capacity to get up, go on, and push through difficulty. We need to believe the same about ourselves. We are far stronger than we think we are. Anytime we're in a down place, maybe angry, tired, lonely, or stressed, we are tempted to become overly sympathetic with ourselves. That brings on an insidious, pampering mindset that says, we deserve a break, just this once. I'm not talking about kicking back on the couch with a bag of chips, not that kind of a break. I'm talking about succumbing to the lie that it's okay to run to vices. No one escapes this impulse. We're all tempted to run to whatever ultimately harms us because it's easy to convince ourselves that surely this must help, but this never does. So what's the solution? get tougher on ourselves, push through difficulty, take a salt tablet, and get back to the battle. This Veterans Day, we are reminded that difficulties will always exist in life. But we don't need to drink excessively. We don't need to give in to road rage. We really don't. By the way, the Get Tough strategy worked. W.O. Brown survived his dysentery and the war. Those who live in freedom will always be grateful to those who help preserve it, For Veterans Day, I'm Marcus Brotherton, author of The Long March Home. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. To hear the podcast version of this program, go to foxnewspodcasts.com. And for all the latest news, go to foxnews.com. Did you hear the news? Now you can. With instant updates from Fox News for Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa. Play news from Fox. In Fox News. It's the latest when you need it. On demand from Fox News and Amazon Alexa.